Um, instead of reading our scripture immediately, uh, what we've been doing is this sermon series on Advent has been using the words of the Apostles' Creed in our description of Jesus. So before our scripture reading, I'd like to, to say uh, the words of the Apostles' Creed together. It is there on page 9 in your bulletin right below our passage. So let's confess together the words that we believe. I believe in God the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. He descended to hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. If you would like to turn in your Bibles or if you want to follow along there uh, in your bulletin, our passage for this morning is on Jesus is the Christ. He is Jesus Christ. So our reading is from Mark 8, which is verses 27 through 29. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. You may be seated. Please pray with me. Our most gracious God and our Father in heaven. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and honoring in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And it's in Jesus' name alone that we pray. Amen. When I was uh, attending Kelvin College back in the years 99 through 2003, I had an annual tradition. Um, I was introduced uh, in my younger years at my church uh, to Handel's Alleluia Chorus. It was something that we would sing um, during the month of December. We would have a, a Christmas carol sing on a Sunday night at our church. Uh, the choir from our local high school would come and sing and lead us. And the last thing we would do is sing the Alleluia Chorus. And it was, it was beautiful. I, Words can't describe. Uh, everyone would stand when we would hear uh, the music start to play, and we would all belt it out in all the different parts, and, and it was gorgeous. Uh, when I got to Kelvin, uh, the Oratorio Society there put on the Messiah every year. So not only was I able to hear the Hallelujah Chorus, but the entire Messiah, which is uh, it's just beautiful. Uh, for me, uh, uh, in college, um, the Christmas season meant being able to, to listen to this amazing work uh, put together by Handel about uh, the life of Christ. 
Um, I haven't been to see or to hear uh, the Messiah since. Uh, it was here last night uh, at, uh, I think it was at the, the Pentecostal church off of 40. Uh, I got that information too late, <laughs> otherwise I may have gone uh, to hear it. Uh, but it's a beautiful piece of work uh, that, that Handel performed uh, or written uh, by Handel. Uh, one of my, uh, there's some famous pieces throughout it. Obviously, the, the Alleluia Chorus is probably the most famous. Uh, but there's another song in there as well. Uh, it's called, For Unto Us a Child is Born. Uh, if Heath was here, maybe I could have him belt out a few lines to it. I'm not going to, uh, I'm, I'm not tempted to do that with you guys. Um, but it's beautiful. It, uh, it echoes the, the words of Isaiah 9. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. Um, as we talk about Jesus coming to us as a child, we are told in Isaiah 9, uh, which I'll read a little bit later in our message this morning, that this child has come to have the government on his shoulders. Not only has he come as a sweet, innocent little baby, but he has come to rule. He has come to be a king. What does all this talk about government, in a sense, have to do with a little child? Well, as we go through the Apostles' Creed description of who Jesus is, last week we talked about the fact that Jesus is Jesus, that He is God saves, that He is our Savior. Uh, This week what we're going to see is that Jesus is the Christ, In the the Old Testament, Jesus was referred to in the Hebrew form of Christ, which is the Messiah. Both Messiah and Christ mean the Anointed One. That Jesus is our Anointed One. He is the Anointed One. So first, a, a brief history lesson on anointing in the Old Testament, so that we understand this is not something that we do typically these days. Um, If you remember back in your Bible, um, if you uh, remember the story of David and all the things that happened to him uh, during his lifetime, uh, one of the most famous stories of David is his anointing. When Saul was king of Israel at the time, Samuel was told to go to Bethlehem and he was going to anoint the next king of Israel. And he has all of Jesse's sons, and Jesse is is David's uh, father, All of Jesse's sons line up from the the oldest to the youngest, and the oldest is this strapping young man who Samuel uh, assumes is going to be the next king because of his appearance. But the Lord does not choose him, and Samuel goes down the line, and finally, uh, out of those brothers, uh, Samuel is not told to anoint any of them. So he asks Jesse, do you have any others? And he says, yes, there's the youngest. It's David. He's out in the fields. So he comes... Uh, gathers David in, and Samuel anoints David as the next king of Israel. He takes uh, oil from a horn, and he pours it on top of David's head. When he does that, what that anointing signifies, it's a, it's a giving of, of power, of, of strength, of majesty over to that person. It is a setting apart, it's a consecrating it's a, it's a purifying that individual for a particular purpose. And it's mostly reserved for the king. That is the most often place that we see it throughout the Old Testament. 
Saul, when he was first anointed as king, uh, was anointed. Kings in the line of David were anointed. But we also see Aaron, when he was uh, ordained to the office of the high priest, he was anointed. Uh, Even though priests and even the occasional prophet received an anointing, this pouring on of oil, there came a point where the anointed one, and when we think of the anointed one, we think of that in capital A, anointed, capital O, one. Uh, It came to signify kings in the line of David. Kings in the line of David. Um, First, it was just referred to as the king. If you remember when David was running from King Saul, who was trying to kill him, um, he would always tell the people not to lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. They referred to the king. Um, After David became king and God made his promise to David, it became known uh, or signified kings in the line of David. In 2 Samuel 22, verses 51 And then spilling over into 23, verse 1, this is written. It says, Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Now these are the words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. In Psalm 18, verse 50, we read, Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. And in 2 Chronicles 6, verse 42, we read, O Lord God, you do not turn away from the face of your anointed one. Remember your steadfast love for David, your servant. So as time marches on, The Jews come to see the Christ as the king in the line of David, this anointed one as a succession from the line of David, to see a great king like David of old. So Israel's anticipation of this anointed one includes the belief, and this is important, that he would usher in Yahweh's, our great God, Yahweh's universal power and dominion. Universal meaning over all the earth. So this is what Peter was insinuating, and this is what he was anticipating when he says to Jesus that you are the Christ. He is saying that you are the anointed one. You are the one in the succession of the line of David. You are the one who is going to bring about God's universal dominion and power over the whole earth. You are the anointed one. And this is where Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7, comes in. Because for the Jews, the vision of the Christ, the anointed one, looks like Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7. And I'm going to read those verses for you. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee, of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. 
You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will do this. And this is the image that Peter is bringing to mind as he calls Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Anointed One. And we see this work itself out in the life of Jesus, that he is the Christ, the Anointed One, even the King that comes in the line of David. Uh, Last week we brought to mind what the angels said to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2 as they announced the birth of Jesus. They said that a Savior has been born. But not only a Savior, they said He is Christ the Lord. For unto you is born this day in the city of David. A Savior. This baby born in David's city is Christ, the Anointed One. The One who has been promised to come. If you skip ahead 33 years in Jesus' life to the triumphal entry, uh, Jesus is entering into the city of Jerusalem, the city of kings. The people are excited because they're anticipating this Anointed One. And Jesus rides into the town to the shouts of Hosanna, And blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And he fulfills what the prophet Zechariah says in Zechariah 9.9. says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughters of Jerusalem, for your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. But then something happens that Peter and the Jews did not anticipate. Before the majesty of Isaiah 9 could be accomplished, Jesus first had to be Isaiah 53. He had to be the suffering servant. These are familiar words from Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 3 and verse 7 as well, where we read, Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a dry root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look to him. This anointed one had no majesty that we should look to him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. 
like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Before he was the prince of peace, he was the suffering servant. The Christ had to die. But even during his trial and his death, his kingship, his anointing is highlighted as he stands before the high priest in mockery of a trial. Mark records this exchange between Jesus and the high priest in Mark 14, verses 61 through 62. It says, And the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And Pilate, for whatever reason, after he condemned Jesus to death, decides to put a sign above Jesus that reads, The King of the Jews. People walk by, mocking him, saying, Let the Christ the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. We talked last week that as they mocked him from the cross, saying he saved others, but he couldn't save himself, the very act of remaining on the cross was why he was our Savior and why he saved others. Little did they know that hanging on the cross was proof that he was the Christ, that he was the King of Israel. And through this sacrificial death, Jesus paid the way, and he paved the way for God's universal power, for his dominion to be fully realized, because through his death, he defeated all of his and our enemies, as the confession puts it. He defeated sin and death and hell and Satan forever. You cannot have universal dominion and have your enemies still sticking around. And this is who Jesus defeats at the cross. So what? So Jesus, the anointed one, has ushered in the universal power and dominion of God. Surely after 2,000 years of that, from that event, surely it would have looked different than this. Don't you think? If we really think about God ushering in His universal power and dominion, if it was me, I would think that it would look different than it does today. They say that 2015 was the year of the most recorded mass shootings in history. Now, I don't know how accurate that is or or what. Uh, We do know that we have seen a lot in the news recently. Uh, We're living in a culture now that is described as post-Christian. That we're going the way of what we see in Europe, which is one of the hardest mission fields right now. If you talk to people at MTW as they're sending out missionaries, Europe is a very difficult place to go to spread the gospel. And this is a place where 500 years ago, these great men and women of the Reformation, they were being martyred for their faith. And now, uh, it is one of the most godless areas uh, in our world. You would think that it would look different now. Where is the universal dominion and power of God? 
You know, we're in the same position as Peter was when he declared that Jesus is the Christ. We didn't, he didn't fully understand that Jesus as the Christ, the anointed one, the one who was majestic in the line of King David, had to die instead of setting up a political kingdom as he came into Jerusalem. What made sense to Peter was that Jesus would come to rule, not to give his life. Reflecting back, Peter probably understood and he realized that God's plans are not our plans and his ways are not our ways. In fact, his ways are better, much better. We may not understand today in 2015, in the moment, in our lifetime even, but there will come a time when we will reflect and we will see what God has done and what He is doing, what He has done throughout all of history. At some point, we will begin to see the why. And we will see the majestic hand of God, how He has been working throughout all of history to bring about all things for good, as it says in Romans 8.28. And you know what? It may take all of eternity for us to see that. But the good news is that we have all of eternity for us to understand the goodness of what God is doing even here and now because God is exercising His divine power, His universal dominion even now. So knowing that Jesus is the Christ, that He is the anointed one of God, How does this affect our lives today? Um, A couple of brief points as we come to the table, as we drive towards communion this morning. Um, First and foremost, because Jesus is the anointed one, because he is our king, we we should not and we uh, we will not put our hope in earthly kings or kingdoms, political leaders or countries. Our hope is is in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. No one else can fill the role that Christ fulfills. We especially need to remember this as we head into this political season, uh, looking at next November. No political candidate is Christ. We have a Messiah. He is Jesus Christ, the Lord. Our hope is not in our political process. The other thing we need to remember is that God's universal power and His dominion will be fully realized when Christ comes again. And until then, we're called to the same faith as Peter had, who confessed that Jesus was the Christ. And faith is not easy. Because as Hebrews 11.1 says, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the convictions of things not seen often hoping for things and being convinced of things that are not seen is hard. It's difficult. But God hasn't left us alone. He has given us power in the form of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 1.8, to His disciples as He was ascending up into heaven, He said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be My witnesses. The Spirit is the down payment of this coming kingdom where the anointed one will rule and reign forever and ever, where God's universal power and dominion will be fully realized.
So God has given us the Spirit, but He has also given us something special in this sacrament, in the Lord's Supper. He has given us a reminder of who Christ is and what He has done to defeat all of His and our enemies. Jesus tells us that as we celebrate this meal, that we should do this in remembrance of Him. If we're called to have faith in things that are not seen, we need to be reminded of those things that we cannot see. We need to be encouraged and strengthened in our faith. This is why we have this meal, to be reminded, to be encouraged. In this meal, we're reminded that Jesus is the Christ, the Anointed One, who was born to us as a child. This One who is the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And we know that the government, that His government and His peace, there will be no end. And He will rule on the throne of His father David and over His kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And as Isaiah says, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this.